I want to take some time to look at the gospel reading and to just reflect on the person of Mary. This gospel reading, of course, is the encounter between two pregnant women, uh, apparently cousins, and um, while in similar states of expecting, uh, the reality is that they were quite different stages of life. One was old and barren, and by a miracle of God, is now pregnant. The other is very young. You know, uh, some people believe, uh, uh, most scholars believe she is anywhere between the ages of 12 and 16. That was the age in which uh, uh, young ladies in that day were betrothed because she was already uh, engaged to be married to Joseph, right? And she was not only just young, it's clear from the passage uh, earlier, if you read the, the few verses before what was read today, uh, she had never been with a man. And therefore, she was a virgin. And so, again, another miraculous uh, conception in that sense. But we want to look at Mary today because, you know, unfortunately, I think through the centuries, Mary has become somewhat of a forgotten figure in Protestant churches. Part of it is because of the Reformation, there was a reaction towards um, the Roman Catholic um, 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 desire to, you know, elevate Mary. And in, in some ways, you know, um, it almost borders on worship. Now, I, I know a number of Roman Catholics and Roman Catholic theologians because I went to school with them, and they will always correct me and say, you know, we don't worship Mary, we venerate her. But, you know, in all uh, intents and purposes, especially amongst the common uh, folk, you would find that it's, it's almost become, um, you know, a, a, a form of worship. But having said that, you know, it's clear that Mary is more than just, you know, another person, another character in the Bible. She is a very important person. And in fact, you see Elizabeth's uh, um, um, greeting to Mary was this, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And I want us, as we reflect on Mary, Mary's life, to ask ourselves the question, what does it mean to be blessed? What is uh, 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 being blessed, what does it look like in life? And we start first by looking at Mary's reality. You know, what was the situation she found herself in? Obviously, we'll have to read into the text a little bit, and it's not all that clear, but I think it, if you read between the lines, it's not a, a big stretch to, to see uh, what I'm about to say. We... If we pick up the story from uh, chapter 1, verse 26. I'm sorry, I need to adjust this. It's, yeah. Yeah. Um, verse 26, we see she is uh, um, visited by the angel Gabriel, uh, who was sent of God to give her an important message. And in verse uh, 28 itself, we see the greeting is this. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And that's where we get that um, you know, beautiful hymn, Ave Maria. Ave meaning greetings. Or Hail Mary, full of grace. <laughs> right? Which is part of uh, um, the, the, the rosary and also the Hail Mary uh, prayer, which Roman Catholics use. And you can see it's directly from Scripture, at least the first part of that prayer comes from Scripture. But what uh, we read in the account is this, that Mary was greatly troubled at his words. 
greatly troubled by the greeting, but I think later on even more troubled by the message the angel brought. Because she was told, like I said before, you know, this is a young woman who's unwed and being told the news that she is now to expect the child. You can put yourself in her shoes where she lived in a very conservative society. I mean, if you read the account in Matthew, um, um, jo Joseph, who was you know, an honorable person, was going to uh, set aside the betrothal because obviously uh, uh, good people, otherwise the accusations may be there that you know, he had uh, done what he ought not to have done. And, and yet, it took another um, uh, visit from an angel to stop that from happening. But I can imagine that she was greatly distressed. She was probably highly anxious. And I was speaking to the younger congregation yesterday, you know, if she were living in this day and age, she would hardly be found on social media with her pregnant belly and, you know, hashtag blessed. It's not uh, uh, something she would have been proud of, in other words. But... You know, if you read the story of Mary through the rest of Scripture, and especially in the Gospels, you see that the rest of her life didn't really go all that smoothly either. Though The one who was called blessed, you know, you think about the, the Christmas story, which we will rehearse later on uh, in this week when we come for our Christmas services. How, you know, she walked about and she couldn't find a place, not just couldn't find a place in the hospital to have her baby delivered, she couldn't find an inn even. Right? There was no room in all the uh, uh, places of housing so that they had to deliver the child in um, um, a stable and lay Jesus in a manger. A manger to us sounds very quaint because it's all part of the nativity scene, but it's a feeding trough for animals. And you think about a manger, the most unhygienic place to lay a newborn baby, animal slobber all over <laughs> and around, because that's where they would eat their food. But you go on and you read, for example, you know, on the eighth day, which was the custom, they would bring the child to the temple to be dedicated. And uh, Simeon, who was the prophet in the temple, spoke a word of prophecy over the child and said to Mary, you know, a sword will pierce your own soul too. Talking about what was to come, a word God was giving her, and of course, we know of the story of her losing her child when he was age 12, right? Uh, if you've ever um, misplaced a child, you know how frantic you would be and how difficult that circumstance might have been. But I think the hardest thing she went through was when Jesus died the death of a criminal on the cross. And to watch your child die before you is hard enough. To watch your child die in shame in, in the most shameful way a person could die in that day and age, would have been very, very painful. You know, I reflect on this because oftentimes we want to be blessed and we pursue blessings. And we want, you know, the blessings of God. And, and, and you know, I, I desire it. I wish it on others. I pray prayers of blessings on people. You know, and there are um, certain circles in Christian uh, churches and, and even Christian teachers who will teach that, you know, God wants us to be the head and not the tail, that we are the first and not the last, that we are to be blessed in all that we do. And they preach a, a message of health and wealth. They preach a message of name it and you claim it, right? That all you need to do is uh, to, to address the problem of human suffering 
is to find a way to um, use prayer as an instrument to get God to do whatever you want Him to do. You follow these rules and God will reward you, He will heal you, He will restore you. This uh, person by the name of um, um, Kate Bowler, am I running ahead of myself? Sorry, I'm looking at my notes and I realized, yeah, I don't, hmm, apologize, things didn't get updated, I updated it at home in the uh, uh, Proclaim and it didn't take and this end for whatever reason, but never mind, you know, nonetheless, let me quote uh, Kate Bowler. Kate um, is a, 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 a church historian, and in particular, her area of research was uh, exploring the prosperity gospel, you know, which is the single, I think, greatest export of the American church. And she interviewed tons of people, not just uh, um, the pastors themselves, but the people who follow them and, you know, have studied, you know, transcripts, looked at messages, and on... Uh, many occasions uh, um, has come to know it from the inside out and she's not all critical, you know, she also sees the positive in uh, a lot of what happens and is done but what was interesting was I think it must have been about five, six years ago, she had a diagnosis of cancer age 35, very young lady with young children and you know, she was confronted with this reality, you know, and the, the contrast between the messages that you hear from these preachers and what she was encountering in life caused her to reflect. And she actually, you can look up uh, her article in the New York Times. She wrote an opinion piece uh, entitled, well, I don't have the title here, it would have been in the <laughs> slides, something about uh, death, me, and the prosperity gospel. Uh, but she quotes, and, and she says this, and I quote her, the prosperity gospel has taken a religion based on the contemplation of a dying man and stripped it of its call to surrender all. Perhaps worse, it has replaced the Christian faith with the most painful forms of certainty. The movement has perfected a rarefied form of America's addiction to self-rule, which denies much of our humanity. It's a very powerful quote. Basically, if I could interpret it for you, she says this, that this uh, addiction that she claims Americans have, but in reality, all of us as human beings, even us here in Singapore, we have this addiction to be, want to be in control. This uh, illusion of control is what we are addicted to. We want to be the ones who rule ourselves. And in uh, pursuing this particular message or this particular way of looking at life, we ultimately deny the reality of what life is. That life isn't always a bed of roses. That life doesn't always line up the way we want it to line up. That being blessed may not always, from the outside, look like a blessed life. But being blessed, I think, in scriptural terms, means something else entirely. And I think we see it then in Mary's response. Mary famously, after being told by the angel Gabriel of the reality that she was pregnant, and pregnant by the Holy Spirit, but would be bearing 
the one who was to be the savior of the world, this was her response. She said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And you know, this is the very reason why as Protestant Christians, as Christians of any stripe, we need to look to Mary in a sense and not forget about her because she was the very first disciple of Jesus. That she uh, uh, subjected herself to the will of God. You know, and uh, later on, you know, the two famous words from her, the first was that, be it, you know, unto me according to your word is the second is in the story in John's gospel of the wedding in Cana of Galilee. You remember that story where you know Jesus attended a wedding party and the wine ran out and the servants came to Mary. I'm not sure why they turned to her, but you know she obviously hadn't suffered uh, from uh, a reputation in that sense from giving birth to Jesus. But uh, she then instructed, she asked Jesus, "Come, please help." <laughs> And uh, then told the servants, do whatever he tells you. And in that sense, you know, these two words alone, I think, are enough for us to consider her and to look to her uh, for our, um, an example for how we as disciples need to behave and act and live and, and, and learn and grow. In our Anglican church, you know, if we followed the evening prayer very closely according to the liturgy, between the readings of Scripture, we would often uh, read a canticle. And there are often hymns that are found in Scripture. And one of them would be the Magnificat, which actually follows the reading we had this morning from the Gospels. And I want us to just look at it very quickly and uh, uh, briefly. This is the Magnificat. And it begins where Mary says, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. And it's interesting to me because, you know, she recognizes then in the next verse, For he has looked on the humble estate of the servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. And Thomas Aquinas, who, you know, is many consider the greatest uh, uh, theologian, uh, in, in the church, and certainly uh, the Roman Catholic Church, but I think for all the church, he pointed out and he believed this was actually Mary's confession before God, an acknowledgement that you know she was humble and lowly and undeserving of the honor that she was being given, which is contra a lot of uh, Roman Catholic doctrine about Mary being sinless uh, from birth to death, you know, and all these other things. And I don't want to get into that because that's not uh, really the point, but. She goes on then to, to, to prophesy, I think, in, in, in my view, it's, it's really a prophecy, this hymn of praise she, she speaks. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And she understood somehow in her heart of hearts that, you know, things that have gone wrong in the world, God intends to make right. The, the, the very hymn of praise where she talks about, you know, 
um, bringing down those who are in lofty places, not just for the sake of revolution. You know, if you look at the world today, one of the things that has become very apparent, even in the midst of COVID, is the, the great inequalities we see in society. Even in a place as prosperous as Singapore, we don't quite escape it. Uh, last night, a, a good friend of mine sent me a, um, uh, an urgent call from um, uh, a ministry uh, that helps the homeless uh, um, and was telling me about the, uh, in the, the, the literature that was sent, basically pointing out that there's a bit of a crisis with homeless, especially those who are families. I think, you know, right now, rental prices have gone through the roof. And although the government is doing all that they can to help the homeless, providing low uh, rental um, flats for them, there's a six to eight month waiting list. And what is um, troubling to him is the issue of the fact that families are being put out of the house. And they're calling out to churches, you know, up uh, to this point of time, you know, especially at the start of the pandemic, there are about 23 churches that offered shelters for homeless people. Now it's been reduced to 18. You know, and there are lots of families who cannot afford, you know, he, he had screenshotted and showed the real estate prices. A one-bedroom HDB flat uh, on the market in Jalan Kukuk, which is one of the you know, lowest uh, um, rental districts in Singapore, is going at $2,300 a month. How would a person who is homeless or is about to be homeless afford a rental place like that. So they really depend on the, the government ones, but the government ones are limited. And so they have to wait six to eight months. And in the interim, although they're being promised housing, where do they live? Where do their children live? You know, and so they're asking, what can we do to help? Now, I, I'm bringing it before you because I also don't know how to help. If any of you have ideas, you know, come speak to me. Uh, I'm going to speak to Vicar about it to see, you know, is there a place uh, that we can open up? Obviously, we can't help many families, but even if we can even help one family, we want to do it. But I, I raised that not to, to, to uh, make the appeal. That wasn't my intention. But I made that appeal to tell you that, you know, while the Lord has been very good to our congregation by and large, I can tell by, um, you know, our ECC, when we look at the accounts, the giving has been very healthy. I know many of you have uh, largely weathered this storm well economically. But yet there are people in our midst for whom, you know, this has been a terrible, tremendous uh, trial. And, you know, Mary's cry should be our cry as well. That, you know, the Lord will help those uh, who are in uh, places where they have less than they need. And those who have too much, that in some ways, you know, the equality would be brought about in a way that is fair and equitable. Unfortunately, a lot of times, human solutions don't always work. So I'm, I'm not necessarily uh, espousing any particular theory or anything of that like. <laughs> you know, I'm just observing that this is a heart's cry and it's a reality. Timothy George, who is a Baptist a theologian and who is reflected on Mary greatly, had this to say about her. Mary is different than any other human being in that she is the one human being in whom God chose to dwell, literally. That, you know, she uh, was the first to experience in a very tangible way God dwelling amongst us and dwelling within her. 
And so Mary, for us, is not so much a person to venerate, but in all intents and purposes, a person to emulate, especially as his disciples. Advent is a time that reminds us to learn from Mary, especially in terms of waiting expectantly for the Lord. To be able to say, you know, be it unto me according to your word. Or what um, was said, oops, again, this is the wrong. (laughs) Yeah, sorry. I'm a little thrown off because this was the previous um, uh, uh, proclaim. Anyway, what was I saying? Yeah, at the end of the passage that was read in verse 45, Elizabeth proclaimed, Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill His promises to her. And this waiting expectantly means a, a wait that is filled with faith and hope knowing that what God says He will do, He does. Standing on His Word and and believing in it. But there is a balance to it because in Advent, we are reminded not only of the fact that when Jesus first came, He uh, inaugurated the kingdom of God amongst us, right? The kingdom of God is among you, He said. And and we see the kingdom breaking into uh, um, life here and now. We see uh, the, the difference that God has made through the son, His Son, Jesus Christ. But there's also the second coming Advent reminds us of. That although the kingdom is already here, it is not yet fully consummated. It's not yet fully uh, um, seen and worked out. And I think this is a problem of much of contemporary Christianity. And sometimes in the way we look at Scripture and how we interpret it, I know I've given... Um, um, Prosperity gospel preachers, a uh, uh, short shift today. But they're not the only ones, you know. I think those of us who are charismatic and, and, you know, believe in the power of the Holy Spirit are also sometimes just as guilty as, you know, uh, taking God's Word and, and taking it too far. You know, that, that's the problem with a lot of the false teaching is that we take truth and we take it uh, and misapply it and it becomes untruth. Um, there is a problem in which, uh, if forgive me for using a technical term, there is an over-realized eschatology in the way um, some of us as Christians operate. In that we, eschatology is end times, the consummation of, of all things. And when it's over-realized, in other words, we want everything to happen here and now. We cannot wait for it to happen. And one of the ways we deny the not yet is sometimes we are presumptuous, for example, in prayer. Those of us, you know, in this congregation know there have been people in our midst whom we prayed for, desperately for healing. And I'm 100% a supporter of praying for healing. And I believe God heals. And I've seen Him heal time and time again. But there are times we become presumptuous in that prayer and we proclaim things sometimes that are totally unhelpful. We try and reduce it to formulas and we say, oh, this person's not healed because of unforgiven sin. Or this person's not healed because you haven't exercised enough faith. Or this person is not healed because... And we come up with all our formulas, you know, trying to say that because God has promised He heals everyone in the end, we misapply it in situations that don't warrant it. And in fact... 
we are pastorally cruel in the end to people in the way we misapply the Word of God to them. Now, I'm, you know, as you know, I, I, I come from that stream and I fully believe that God heals and I, I do engage in healing prayer. In fact, we've started talking, Ravi and myself, and um, um, uh, someone else came up to me about it. We do hope to start up a healing ministry in the church because we believe in the power of prayer and we believe in God healing. But the reality is God's promise for healing is according to His own timing and then according to His own plan and purpose. Not everyone we pray for here on earth gets healed. Does that mean God doesn't answer prayer? No. By, by no means. Now, the flip side of it, if I can <laughs> digress slightly, of having an over-realized eschatology is having an under-realized eschatology. You know, there are those who would think, oh, we don't pray, you know, if it's God's will, God will heal. We don't have to uh, presume, you know, and, and then you, you, you fail to see that the kingdom of God has already broken in and that His Spirit is at work and that we as uh, the, the children of God are called to exercise that ministry and to have exercised the faith and to minister His grace. But you see, either side where we deny both either the, the, the already or the not yet is problematic. And instead, what we need to see is that we need to come and to wait expectantly before the Lord. To operate, yes, on faith, but also to have the grace and the willingness to allow God to do what He does and that He's sovereign. You know, if I can just tie this up, and it's not quite related to the sermon, but I, I don't want to leave it hanging. My belief is that God does heal everyone 100% of the time. All our prayers are answered. The issue is an issue of timing and how His healing takes place. Because for me, healing that happens here on earth is always uh, very limited and, and never really fully realized here on earth. You know, you pray for a person you know, who recovers from cancer, they may well recover from cancer, but then some other illness will eventually take them. I've told you this when I preached uh, some time ago on Lazarus. Lazarus was wonderfully raised from the grave. But you know, Lazarus is not with us today because he eventually died again. Right? Something else took him because this is the problem that we live on this side of eternity. We still live under the power of sin in that sense. Although sin has been defeated, its effects still uh, work and reign in our lives. And I've ministered to people and at times, you know, when I can see that um, it's, their time on earth is not long, I share with them that God heals, but sometimes His healing doesn't take place in the way we would want it to take place. But that they will be healed and ultimately they will discover this when they enter into eternity. Where they go to a place where there is no more death, no more dying, no more pain, no more sorrow, no more suffering. And the loved ones that we have who used to walk amongst us, whom we had prayed so much for, today, I believe many of them, if not all of them, are with Him in paradise and enjoying that fullness of life that is promised to us. So that's my take on eschatology. But where does that leave us? What is our response? How do we respond? How do we 
you know, if we want to hold Mary as an, uh, uh, a model to follow, how do we, who are poor imitators of Mary, let alone imitators of Christ, how do we respond? What, is it, what do we do if we haven't been able to wait expectantly? If we've been, you know, uh, as guilty about having an over-realized or an under-realized eschatology, or if we've struggled to keep the faith, or we've struggled to maintain our hope in the face of the reality of life. You know, one of the most loved hymns, and I love it too, uh, uh, carols at Christmas time that we sing is, O come, all ye faithful. Right? Joyful and triumphant. O come ye, O come ye to Bethlehem. And, and I understand the sentiment, but I've often wondered the question, you know, what about those who've been unfaithful? Are they welcome? <laughs> and I'm about to share with you a, a, a Christmas hymn that was written last year. And the title grabbed me because at first glance you miss it, but it's entitled, O Come you, All You Unfaithful. And let me just share with you, I have the music team move up as they will lead us in this song. But the words are powerful, and I hope as they minister to us, you will allow the words of this hymn to minister to you as well. It says, O come, all you unfaithful, come, weak and unstable. Come, know that you're not alone. O come, barren and waiting ones, weary of praying. Come, see what your God has done. Come, bitter and broken, come, with fears unspoken. Come, taste of his perfect love. Come, guilty and hiding ones, there is no need to run. See what your God has done. Christ is born. Christ is born. Christ is born for you. That is the message of Advent. Advent is about His coming, His first coming, but also the fact that He is coming again. But Advent is also an invitation to each and every one of us to come to Him. To come to receive this greatest Christmas gift of all, the gift of His Son, Jesus Christ. The one in whom the hopes and fears of all the years are wrapped in Him. So wherever you may be, whoever you may be, whatever your circumstance may be, let's come before Him. Hear this as a prayer. Just listen to the words and let the Lord minister His grace to you.